Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it? Or worse, you have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation? My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income-producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Mark Weinstein. After beginning his career as an attorney, Mark founded MJW Investments in 1983 when he discovered the potential of real estate investment and development through several successful ventures. Under his leadership, MJW has acquired approximately $1.5 billion worth of apartments, student housing, commercial buildings, industrial, and self-storage facilities. So thank you so much for being on the show with us today, Mark. Welcome to here. So give us a little background on yourself, both uh, personally and professionally prior to forming MJW uh, and getting involved in real estate investing. So I came from, I was born in the San Fernando Valley, uh, lived in Canoga Park, where I ran track at UC Santa Barbara, went to law school, passed the bar at Loyola Law School. And uh, so I, I started my real estate while I was in law school. Awesome. And then why did you choose real estate as your investment vehicle of choice? Well, I, I saw that it had great potential to create wealth and I wanted to be a philanthropist and I figured I could make a lot more money being in real estate than <laughs> I would in, you know, just being a lawyer. And it had significant tax benefits that I really yeah. liked. And so it just seemed that that was an area that I could, I could build wealth and, and do good things. How did you get started initially into real estate investing? So what was your first real estate investment? What kind of properties were you starting out in? Well, when we were in law school, I came up with the idea that we should find an apartment building near school mm -hmm. and I'd get the students to give me their student loan money, their work money, whatever money they had. I said, let's just buy a <laughs> building. And so we bought, when I was 22, 23 years old, we bought a five unit building near Lyle Law School. And so that was the starting income property. It was a house and four units. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, my first property I bought was 20. I was 22. It was 1.5 miles from college I just graduated from and uh, yeah, rented it to college students as well. So I know how that goes. Yeah, so that was the start. Uh, so your firm over the years has invested a lot into student housing. And I know that's one of your favorite asset classes. Can you tell us a little bit about why you like student housing as an asset class? Well, it seems to be recession resilient um, and it did, it did really well during the pandemic if you're mm -hmm. at the right schools. And so right. we, like, we like the idea of being at, you know, Pac-12, Big Ten, great schools, being close, you know, walking distance to school and workforce, kind of a workforce housing. We, don't, we generally aren't the prettiest building at the school, though we have bought some newer properties 
the last few years because they were you know great purchases. But overall, we're, we're we're trying to be reasonably priced. Great schools, great social atmosphere, and places where people want to be. What have you What have you found that really differs between someone that uh, maybe reviewing multifamily investing versus student housing? How does that differ in the whole realm of how you're buying a property and how important location is? So we have a very active practice both in student housing and in regular multifamily. Often, a market that we might buy a student housing project in, we would not buy multifamily because it's a college town. It's good for the school, like Pullman, Washington. That's a, a really good school for us, Washington State. But I wouldn't necessarily want to buy apartment buildings, regular apartment buildings in there because it's not that strong, you know, with all the different demographics and, and income and all the different things um, that we usually would want. But um, but for a student housing, it was, it's a good school. It's in the Pac-12, and and we've done well with it. And uh, so it's, it differs by you know a lot of different criteria that you might have for multifamily. You know, it wouldn't necessarily apply to the college down, but like East Lansing, another place, you know, Michigan State, good school. But you know, the apartments in that area, you know, aren't particularly in Lansing. Isn't you know particularly hot apartment market. So and then there's some markets like Ann Arbor. We're, yeah, we're, so. we're for student housing, but I think that would be, would be a good apartment market. So, but often it, it differs. And how do you find it? I mean, I've, I've done a couple of years of being a student housing landlord, let's say on a very small scale. What, what are the big differences when you're managing it? So you've purchased it, you found the location at a good school, um, you're doing your renovations to it. And how is the management going to differ from a traditional multifamily apartment? It's much harder. It's it's yeah. an it's an operating business, you know. So think of it as like mm -hmm. like a hotel. It, it's shared living. It's a hotel. So it's a lot more complicated. And over the years, you know, we we realized that while we like the regular multifamily as well, is because it's a lot easier to manage, mm -hmm. and you, you get paid more for your work often in in apartments. So student housing was we were able to purchase a lot at really great values and at great schools, and so you know they they, they kind of complement each other, but um, it's it's a lot more management intensive. People that are in regular multifamily, the one caveat I would say is it's not the same when you're managing student housing. You you better really know your schools. If you miss a, a leasing season, you know which we all have, you know it punishes you for two years because your renewals are less, your 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 occupancy is less. It takes a while to catch up. Where in a regular multifamily, you know you have a bad month, you know the year could still be good. Yeah, so your renovations really have to be planned out in that business plan. Whereas multifamily, if a lot of people want to renew or whatever it is, you can kind of skew the renovation, but you have to have it done by leasing season, so these oh. units can be out, or it's going to be down for the whole year. Yeah, so or semester. Yeah, that that's one of the real big things is you have a, a window of two or three weeks where you have to get everything done. And so often, what you do is you do some things that you can do during the year, and then you, you focus those those couple of weeks just on on the stuff that you have to do in those couple of weeks but yeah it's yeah i haven't had the problem of actually missing it by the by by um not having this stuff ready but i've seen it it happen before and i've seen it get very close for us it's very stressful yeah i would imagine so and you you mentioned something which i don't know if listeners would be that much uh, in tune to which was shared housing so in my what i hear that is i'm saying that you're renting it by the bed Yes. versus by the apartment. So how does that, I mean, that is a very management intensive activity. 
Right. So not all our properties are done that way, but a lot of them are. And um, so the shared bed is like shared living, co-living. Um, you know, you, you basically are getting an individual sino or leasey on a, a bed rather than a unit. So if it's if it's a two bedroom and you have four beds, then you have four individual leases. And so you're dealing with more people. It's more manager intensive. You get guarantors, but still it's a it's much more involved and a lot more work. So for new investors looking to get into student housing, you put some high level facts up there about the school, about leasing season. What would be some other tips that you might or advice you would provide to someone that might be interested in starting in student housing? Well, I, I think it's very school specific. I think, mm-hmm. you know, often how it happens is somebody has a kid that's going to college and they, uh-huh. you see it's so hard for them, let's say at Berkeley, so hard for you to find a, a residence that they say, okay, let's buy a duplex, let's let's buy a condo or whatever. And that, that often can work out. I mean, I think the people that have done at the good schools that have bought small housing projects have done pretty well. I think that um, you should you should look at if you can have, if it's big enough, get professional management. If it isn't, you know, make sure that you have somebody that you really trust that understands the operation of when when you renew student leases, what the leasing, you know, knowing the leasing season, mm-hmm. um, having your, you know, having the units ready for occupancy, you know, just know your key dates, you know, your operation, you know, and, and know that you have a, a person on the ground that can, that can really execute your plan. Do you find, is there, is, I mean, I imagine student housing management companies are a specific niche. Are you guys bringing that in house or are you using third parties to manage it? Because if you have assets in different places throughout the country, it might be difficult to get design and have your own management company. So we have in both our multifamily and student housing, we have specific management companies that we partner with. So Mm -hmm. even though we do management ourselves in Los Angeles, for example, we outsource that, but it's a, but it's on a more direct basis, partnership basis, where you know either we have those management companies they invest in the individual deals, or we you know do a lot of business with them, and we're really very active since we're we're management company ourselves. We're very active in the asset management, both in student housing and in multifamily, and we generally have geographically, you know. Sometimes in a particular area, let's say Vancouver, Washington, or actually all of Washington, we have one management company that does our stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have stuff in Atlanta. We have one management company that does stuff in Atlanta. Then we have a you know a, a property management company in Utah that does a lot of our stuff at most of the schools we're at because they're partners with us. They've invested heavily in some of the deals. They're vested. They're, they're friends. Mm-hmm. It's called Redstone Residential. And... Uh, it's it works really it's worked really well. It's been a good partnership. Yeah, that's a great alignment of interest that I don't hear too much from investors. But if you have a tried and true relationship with them, that's a great way of getting on the same page with everything. And we try, you know, at all the places we go, we we try to invite them to invest in our deals, and they've obviously been very happy because we've done well. And so it's been it's even better when they invest and you do really well. Yeah. And they're more like you said, they're more aligned. You know, it's not you're not always able to do that. Yeah. We do that with brokers too. We try to get brokers yeah. to bring us deals to invest in the deals so they can share in the profits. Yeah, it's a great way of doing it, spreading the wealth around. So, what with with most investment firms, uh, they're really focused on buying in multifamily, hundred plus unit assets. However, when I was doing research for this episode, I realized that you're a fan of purchasing smaller properties as well, which I love this strategy. But can you explain why that is? Why you're a fan of that? Well, first of all. 
um, we, we don't want to buy just a small property. And generally, when you see that, we are we already own a larger project or mm -hmm. it's, it's part of a scattered sites. And so sometimes I can't buy 200 units in a, in a particular place, let's say Santa Barbara, but I can buy four buildings that are 50 units or or some 30 units and 60 units or whatever it is. So I could get I can have a scattered site portfolio like in Oregon. We have 400 units, you know, scattered site portfolio. Um, so that way I can scale by not having to find that one building. I, have, I get several buildings, much harder to manage. Yeah. And there's an art to it. it it's it's an art, not a science. Mm -hmm. And um, you, yeah, you just have to do it right. And you have to staff it right. And not every management company is going to be good at doing that. Yeah, that's definitely true. What what is if someone wants to do that where they're buying? Because I started off buying like threes and fives, and they were all within like a mile of each other. And it was it obviously wasn't as easy as buying a fifty unit building, right? But you're starting off. But if someone wants to do that, what would be the best best course of action for them uh, to be able to really scale that and gain operational efficiencies if that was their plan to buy smaller properties from the get go? Well, generally you should focus on a geographic area, like for instance in Los Angeles. One block, we have a couple hundred units. You know, in Seattle, same thing. You know, within a mile, we have three or four hundred units. And just you know, try to look at the geography you want to be in. And the challenge is that if you buy that first building and it's small, you know, what it costs for a good manager, you know, what it costs to keep a management company, you know, keep their attention, you know, that you got to have enough there for them to do that. So you, you really, if you want to scale, you should try to, if possible, buy as many buildings as you can as close in time as, as you can so that you actually have the scale because because mm -hmm. the challenge is that you know it costs let's say sixty thousand dollars for a manager of a whatever building and if you only have 20 units that that, that doesn't make sense and so um you, you need you need to try you try to buy things in a portfolio so that you scale right right away and then and then the idea is that once you've already got a bunch of buildings you keep buying more and that's the real scaling is it so you, so you have an a, a efficiency because you already have 100 units say it's four buildings then you could buy that 20 unit building or the 10 unit building because it's all part of your scattered site but if you start with a 10 unit or 20 unit, you know that can be done and, and obviously finances dictate a lot mm -hmm. but it's not as easy to be efficient until you get to a certain probably up to about 100 units Right, where you can have full-time people, right, uh, full-time people handling a lot of the day-to-day, -day. and you can yeah. pay them well because yes. I think it's important to pay them yeah. well. So, because think about this: a lot of times at a student housing project, you have, you know, five hundred beds, you know, seven hundred beds, and you have this person. Maybe you're paying sixty thousand dollars. That person's running a fifty, sixty million dollar asset. Mm -hmm. So you got to really be thinking yeah. about as you have your portfolio as it grows. You know, this person on the ground is really the person. Yeah, the management company is there, but it's that it's that community manager, um, resident manager that is really running the asset. Yeah, and I feel it's it's just so much more efficient when you have a full time person, full time handyman, whatever it might be, that's focused on the asset. Because when there's an issue that comes through, they're literally li uh, looped in from the beginning. It's right. not going to anywhere higher. If there's an issue, it's taken care of at that level, which is uh, great. The other thing I want to ask about is you're going to get a management company. Obviously, there's specific management companies for specific classes and portfolio sizes. If you were going to do it and you were starting with smaller properties, would you maybe get an idea on where you're going to get scale on rates and where you're going to get decreases on rates? So at different numbers, or is it something that as it happens, you negotiate again with a management company? 
third party? Um, probably more as it happens, you know. And we, we try to find with scattered sites and smaller buildings. There's a, the management companies, especially in the multifamily, really vary a lot. And you, you, you're probably not going to get a bigger company that, that would ever be interested yeah. in doing that. And you have to really find out whether the, the company, probably a smaller size company, you know, is equipped to do what you need them to do. And, you know, that's a very important decision to make. Yeah. So does your firm uh, invest and in, do any kind of uh, development deals at all? We in Earlier earlier in my career, before my hair was gray, um, uh, we did a lot of large scale developments. And right now we're doing one self storage with a, with a partner. But for the most part, um, we just do redevelopment or you know, and actually, recently we've been buying newer uh, class A, class B plus apartment buildings and just better managing them and doing light value add. So we're, we're, we're kind of flight to quality right now. We don't think that with the deeper value add right now, you're getting paid for the risk. And so we're tending to try to buy newer buildings below replacement costs, both in student housing and in multifamily. But we've been doing more multifamily the last year or so. That's a very interesting strategy. I like that finding new strategies that people are using. So you're buying a you're buying it from a developer, I guess that hasn't seasoned it. Is that why you're getting a yes. a discount between? So they're still on construction loan, and you're taking it off their hands at that time. That's one way. Another way is that they've had problems. They 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 mm-hmm. had too much in their development pipeline. They need cash, mm-hmm. and so we get in there, and like you said, they lease it up quickly, um, or we're buying something. It's a trophy type property. Um, it's not brand new, but it's really great shape, but the, the owner just didn't operate it efficiently. And so we can go in there. It's kind of like an operational value add. And, and also the, the rates are low. And so it's not just the expense side, but it's the income side. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And you have many years of good bones on the property and really minimal right. maintenance. It's like right. buy, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, core plus kind of stuff. Right. So what are common mistakes that you see real estate investors make over the years? Um, but buying based on what everybody else is doing, you know, it's like just because someone's buying right now doesn't mean it's a good time to buy. Just because there's equity out there for a certain deal doesn't mean it's a good deal. And so I think the 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 amount of equity um, out there causes people to overpay and overreact. And also, just because other people do things doesn't mean you should be doing them. So I think you have to really look at the fundamentals of what you're investing in. Look at the you know interest rate of the loan you're going to get. And are you are you getting paid for the risk that you're taking? Like right now, with interest rates going higher, if you're buying a building and you're paying the old prices, you're taking on way more risk and you're not getting rewarded for it. Right. That's great. Uh, so you've been doing this for 40, 40 plus years. How have your thoughts towards money over those years changed? Well, I've always been very big on philanthropy and giving back. It's a, it's a defining principle for me. My legacy, you know, partly besides what I you know do in the real estate world is what I do in the community, and I, I and I've been giving large since I was young. You know, just really believed in it always, and I don't really believe you should wait till you're you're gone to be doing major philanthropy. So I've done a lot of larger gifts and a lot of projects and been involved in philanthropy, and I think that as I get older, it's even it's you know I have, I have nine year old kids. I got married later, great wife Farah and two kids Brooke and Blake, and they're nine years old. They're twins, and and. I want them to see while I'm young still, you know, with philanthropy is on the hands-on basis and on the giving basis. So I probably was always big on money being used for philanthropy and for legacy, but probably even more so now. 
That's great. So you obviously you you've had you have a strong why and philanthropy throughout the years. But what are some other main factors that have contributed to your success uh, over these decades? Well, I think that surrounding myself around wonderful people, like with, mm. through, through philanthropy, you meet a lot of really wonderful people. And so that's been you know great to have these great friends from that. And another other thing was Young Presidents Organization, YPO. Um, through my associations with YPO, I was the multifamily chair for five years for YPO. I'm in the family office principals group. So I get an unbelievable diversity of great scholarly and personal advice from really smart people that you know are in business. Some of them are multi-generational families. Some of them are just real estate mavens. And so I've been really lucky through my involvement in Young Presidents Organization also just to have you know a great great people to work with. I never had a mentor when I was growing up. And so I'm obsessed with being a mentor, but I but I do look to these people for, you know, advice and 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 information all the time. One thing before we wrap up that was very interesting. Would if you went back again, would you have sorted would you have kind of uh, sought out a mentor earlier on in your real estate yeah. career? It's a good question, actually. I think, number one, I never worked for a real estate company. So I think it would have been helpful, A, Mm -hmm. that I worked at a real estate company. I think that would be one thing I would do differently. And two, um, I, yeah, I would have liked to have gotten more mentors. I just, I didn't know how. And that's why I'm so, you know, why I started mentorship programs, because I thought it was so important, because it made it so much harder for me to succeed by not having one. I thought that, you know, I wanted to give that gift to others. And so I've, some programs to charity that I do that have mentorship programs. Well, that's great, Mark. So how can our listeners learn more about you and your business? Well, our website, MJW Investments, um, on the web, on the you can Google MJW Investments, and Mark Weinstein, obviously, there's articles and information on both the philanthropy and also on the what projects we do. And, you know, there's some really great articles about my journey and the company's journey. So I think that would be interesting for people. And and then they can read about, you know, all the different projects we have. Well, that's great, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on and giving back to your community. It's, it's awesome to have you as a, uh, as a guest on the show. All right. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.